Section 10 of The Romance of Modern Mechanism. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tina Ding. The Romance of Modern Mechanism by Archibald Williams. Chapter 8 The Motor Afloat. Part 2. Motor Fishing Boats It is a pretty sight to watch a fishing fleet enter the harbor with its catch, taken far away on the waters beyond the horizon while landsmen slept. The sails, some white, some brown, some wondrously patched, and bearing the visible marks of many a hard fight with the wind, bally out in graceful lines as the boats slip past the harbor entrance. No wonder that the painter has so often found subjects for his canvas and brushes among the toilers of the deep. But, underlying the romance and picturesqueness of the craft, there is stern business. Those boats may be returning with full cargoes, such as will yield good profits to owner and crew, or, on the other hand, the hold may be empty and many honest hearts be heavy at the thought of wasted days. A few years ago, the Yarmouth Herring Fleet is said to have returned on one occasion with but a single fish to the credit of the whole fleet. This might have been a mere figure of speech. It stands, at any rate, for many thousands of pounds lost by the hardy fishermen. When the boats have been made fast, the fish if already disentangled from the nets, is usually sold at once by auction, the price depending largely on the individual size and freshness of the catch. Now, with the increase in the number of bolts and from other causes, the waters near home have been so well fished over that much longer journeys must be made to the grounds than were formerly necessary. Trawling, that is, dragging a large bag net, its mouth kept open by a beam and weights, along the bottom of the sea for flatfish has long been performed by powerful steam vessels, which may any day be seen leaving or entering Hull or Grimsby in large numbers. Surface fishing, wherein a long drift net weighted at its lower edge and buoyed at the upper edge to enable it to keep a perpendicular position is used for herring and mackerel, and in this industry, wind power alone is generally used by British fishermen. The herring boat set sail for the grounds in the morning, and at sundown should be at the scene of action. Her nets, aggregating perhaps a mile in length, are then shut, and the boat drifts along, towing the line behind her. If fish appear, the nets are hauled in soon after daybreak by the aid of a capstan. The labor of bringing a mile of nets aboard is very severe. So severe, in fact, that the larger boats in many cases employ the help of a small steam engine. During the return voyage, the fish is freed from the meshes and thrown into the hold ready for sale as soon as land is reached. Fish whether for salting or immediate consumption, should be fresh. 
No class of human food seems to deteriorate so quickly when life is extinct as the denizens of the deep, so that it is of primary importance to fishermen that their homeward journey should be performed in the shortest possible time. If winds are contrary or absent, there may be such delay as to need the liberal use of salt, and even that useful commodity will not stave off a fall in value. It therefore often happens that a really fine catch arrives at its market in a condition which spells heavy loss to the catchers. A slow return also means missing a day's fishing, which may represent two hundred pounds to three hundred pounds. For this reason, the Dogger Bank fishing fleet is served by steam tenders, which carry off the catches as they are made. And thus obviate the necessity for a boat's return to port when its hold is full. Such a system will not, however, be profitable to boats owned by individuals and working within a comparatively short distance of land. Each boat must depend on its particular powers. The first to return getting rather better prices than those which come with a crowd. So steam power is in some cases installed as an auxiliary to the sails, though it may entail the outlay of two thousand pounds as first cost and a big bill for upkeep and management. Small men cannot afford this expense, and they would be doomed to watch their richer brethren slip into the market before them, had not the explosion motor come to their aid. This just meets their case. It is not nearly so expensive to install as steam, occupies much less room, is easier to handle, and therefore saves the expense of trained attendants. Fishermen are notoriously conservative. To them, a change from methods sanctioned by many years of practice is abhorrent. What sufficed for their fathers, they say, should suffice for them. Their trade is so uncertain that a bad season would see no return for the cost of the motor, since where no fish are caught, it makes little difference whether the journey to port be quick or slow. However, the motor is bound to come; it has been applied to fishing boats with marked success. While the nets are out, the motor is stopped and costs not a penny more till the time comes for hauling in. Then it is geared up with a capstan, and saves the crew much of their hardest work. When all is aboard, the capstan hands over the power to the screw, which, together with the sails, propels the vessel homewards at a smart pace. The skipper is certain of making land in good time for the market, and he will be ready for the out voyage next morning. Another point in favor of the motor is that. When storms blow up, the fleet will be able to run for shelter, even if the wind be adverse, and we should hear less of the sacrifice of life, which makes sad reading after each severe gale. As to the machinery to be employed, Mr. F. Miller of Oldenbrod, who first applied the gas motor to a fishing smack, the Pioneer, considers that a 12 horsepower engine would suffice as an auxiliary. For small craft of the class found in the northern parts of Great Britain, the Norfolk boats would require a 30 horsepower and a full-powered boat.
that is one that could depend on the motor entirely, should carry a three-cylinder engine of 80 horsepower. In any case, the machinery must be enclosed and well protected, while the lubrication arrangements should be such as to be understood easily by unskilled persons and absolutely reliable. Owing to the moisture in the atmosphere, the ordinary high-tension coil ignition, such as is used on most motor cars, would not prove efficient, and it is therefore replaced by a low-tension type, which makes and breaks the primary circuit by means of a rocking arm working through the walls of the cylinder. Lastly, all parts which require occasional examination or adjustment must be easily accessible so that they may receive proper attention at sea and not send the vessel home a lame duck under sail. The advantages of the motor are so great that the Scotch authorities have taken the matter up seriously, appointing an expert to make inquiries. It is therefore quite possible that before many years have elapsed, the motor will play an important part in the task of supplying our breakfast tables with a dainty sole or toothsome herring. A motor fire float. As a good instance of this particular adaptation of the explosion engine to fire extinction work, we may quote the apparatus now in attendance on the huge factory of Messrs. Huntley and Palmer, the famous reading biscuit makers. The factory lies along the banks of the River Kennet, which are joined by bridges so close to the water that a steamer could not pass under them. Messrs. Merriweather accordingly built the motor float, 32 feet long, 9.5 feet beam, and drawing 27 inches. Two engines, each having four cylinders of a total of 30 horsepower, drive two sets of three-cylinder Hatfield pumps, which give a continuous feed to the hose. Engines and pumps are mounted on a single bed plate and are worked separately unless it be found advisable to Siamese the hoses to feed a single one-and-a-half-inch jet, which can be flung to a great height. One of the most interesting features of the float is the method of propulsion. As its movements are limited to a few hundred yards, the fitting of a screw was considered unnecessary its place being taken by four jets, two at each end, through which water is forced against the outside water by the extinguishing pumps. These will move the float either forward or astern, steer her or turn her around. So here once again, petrol has trotten upon the toes of giant steam, and very effectively too. The mechanism of the motor boat in many points, the marine motor reproduces the machinery built into cars. The valve arrangements, governors, design of cylinders, and water jackets are practically the same. Small boats carry one cylinder or perhaps two, just as a small car is content with the same number. But a racing or heavy boat employs four, six, and in one case at least 12 cylinders which abolish all dead points and enable the screw to work very slowly without engine vibration as the drive is continuous. 
The large marine motor is designed to run at a slower rate than the land motor, and its cylinders are therefore of greater size. Some of the cylinders exhibited in the automobile show at the London Olympia seemed enormous when compared with those doing duty on even high-powered cars, being more suggestive of the parts of an electric lighting plant than of a machine which has to be tucked away in a boat. Except for the reversing gear, gearing is generally absent on the motorboat. The chauffeur has not to keep changing his speed lever from one notch to another, according to the nature of the country. On the sea, conditions are more consistently favorable or unfavorable, and as in the steamboat, speed is controlled by opening or closing the throttle. The screw will always be turned by the machinery, but its effect on the boat must depend on its size and the forces acting in opposition to it. Since water is yielding, it does not offer a parallel to the road. Should a car meet a hill too steep for its climbing powers, the engines must come to rest. The wheel does not slip on the road, and so long as there is sufficient power. It will force the car up the severest incline. As soon as the power proves too small for the task in hand, the car lies down. In a motorboat, however, the engine may keep the screw moving without doing more against wind and tide than prevent the boat from advancing backwards. The only way to make the boat efficient to meet all possible conditions will be to increase the size. Or alter the pitch of the screw, and to install more powerful engines. Gearing down, as in the motor car, being useless, the only mechanism needed on the motorboat in connection with the transmission of power from cylinders to screw is the reversing gear. Though engines have been designed with devices for reversing by means of the cams operating the valves. The reversal of the screw's movement is generally effected through gears on the transmission apparatus. The simplest arrangement, though not the most perfect mechanically, is a reversible screw, the blades of which can be made to feather this way or that by the movement of a lever. Sometimes two screws are employed with opposite twists. The one doing duty while the other revolves idly, but for fast and heavy boats, a single solid screw with immovable blades is undoubtedly preferable. Its reversal being effected by means of friction clutches, the inelasticity of the explosion motor renders it necessary that the change be made gradually, or the kick of the screw against the motor might cause breakages. The clutch, gradually engaging with a disc revolved by the propeller shaft, first stops the antagonistic motion and then converts it into similar motion. Many devices have been invented to bring this about, but as a description of them would not be interesting, we pass on to a consideration of the fuel used in the motorboat. Petrol has the upper hand at present. Yet heavier oil must eventually prevail, on account both of its cheapness and of its greater safety. 
The only objection to its use is the difficulty attending the starting of the engine with kerosene, and this is met by using petrol till the engine and carburetor are hot and then switching on the petroleum. When once the carburetor has been warmed by exhaust gases to about 270 degrees Fahrenheit, it will work as well with the heavy as with the light fuel. Since any oil or spirit may leak from its tanks and cause danger, an effort has been made to substitute solid for liquid fuel. The substance selected is naphthalene, well known as a protector of clothes against moths. At the Olympia Automotive Exhibition of 1905, the writer saw an engine, the Chenier Lyon, which had been run with balls of this chemical fed to the carburetor through a melting pot. For a description of this engine, we must once again have recourse to the motorboat. The inventors had decided to test its performance with petrol, paraffin, and naphthalene, respectively. The motor, screwed to a testing bench, was connected by the usual belt to a dynamo so that the power developed under each variety of fuel might be electrically measured and was then started up on petrol. As soon as the parts were sufficiently warmed up by the exhaust heat, the petrol was turned off and the motor run for some time on paraffin until sufficient naphthalene was thoroughly melted to the consistency of a thick syrup. The naphthalene was then fed to its mixing valve through a small pipe dipping into the bottom of the melting pot, and then sprayed into the induction chamber to carburate the air therein. Hitherto, the motor had given an average of 12 electrical horsepower at 1,000 revolutions per minute, and it was noticed that as soon as the change was made, this was fully maintained. This test, when continued, bore out others which had previously been made by the firm and showed the consumption of each of the three fuels to be a little over 12 pounds per hour for the 12 electrical horsepower given by the motor. Still, the paraffin and naphthalene worked out about as equal as to cost and considering that the latter was in its purest form as sold for a close preservative. We have yet to see how much better its commercial showing will be with lower grades, assuming beforehand that its thermal efficiency and behavior are as good. On the ground of convenience, naphthalene as a solid is a very long way in front of its liquid rival, kerosene. Its exhaust, too, was much freer from odor, and it appears that, unlike paraffin, it forms neither tar suit, nor sticky matter, but, on the contrary, has a tendency to brighten all valves, cylinders, walls, etc., any little deposit being a light powder, which would be carried into the exhaust. The two-stroke motor. In the ordinary auto cycle motor, an explosion occurs once in every two revolutions of the crank. With a single cylinder, the energy of the explosion must be stored up in a heavy flywheel to carry the engine through the three other operations of scavenging, sucking in a fresh charge, 
and compressing it preparatory to the next explosion. With two cylinders, the flywheel can be made lighter as an explosion occurs every revolution. And in a four-cylinder engine, we might almost dispense with the wheel altogether, since the drive is continuous, just as in the double-cylindered steam engine. The two-stroke motor, that is one which makes an explosion for every revolution, is an attempt to unite the advantages of a two-cylindered engine of the auto type with the lightness of a single-cylindered engine. As it has been largely used for motorboats, especially in America, a short description of its working may be given here. In the first place, all moving cylinder valves are done away with, their functions being performed by openings covered and opened by the movements of the piston. The crank chamber is quite gas tight and has in it a non-return valve through which vapor is drawn from the carburetor every time the piston moves away from the center. There is also pipe connecting it with the lower part of the cylinder, but the other end of this is covered by the piston until it has all but finished its stroke. Let us suppose that an explosion has just taken place. The piston rushes downwards, compressing the gas in the crank chamber to some extent. When the stroke is three parts performed, a second hole on the opposite side of the cylinder from the aperture already referred to is uncovered by the piston and the exploded gases partly escape. Immediately afterwards, the second hole is uncovered also and the fresh charge rushes in from the crankcase being deflected upwards by a plate on the top of the piston so as to help drive out the exhaust products. The returning piston covers both holes and compresses the charge till the moment of explosion when the process is repeated. It may be said in favor of this type of engine that it is very simple and free from vibration. Against it that, owing to the imperfect scavenging of exploded charges, it does not develop so much power as an autocycle engine of equal cylinder dimensions. Also, that it is apt to overheat while it uses double the amount of electric current. Motor boats for the Navy A country which like England, depends on the command of the sea for its very existence, may well keep a sharp eye on any invention that tends to render that command more certain. In recent years, we have heard a lot said and read a lot written about the importance of swift boats which in wartime could be launched against a hostile fleet armed with a deadly torpedo. The Russo-Japanese War has given us a fine example of what can be accomplished by daring men and swift torpedo craft. For some reason or other, the British Navy has not kept abreast of friends in the number of her torpedo vessels. Reference to official figures shows that while our neighbors can boast 280 hornets, we have to our credit only 225. In the House of Commons, on August 10, 1904, Mr. Henry Norman, MP, 
asked the Secretary of the Admiralty whether, in view of the proofs recently afforded of trustworthiness, speed, simplicity, and comparatively low cost of small vessels propelled by petrol motors, he would consider the advisability of testing this class of vessel in His Majesty's Navy. The Secretary replied that the Admiralty had kept a watch on the recent trials and meant to make practical tests with motor pinnaces. In view of the danger that would accompany the storage of petrol on board ship, the paraffin motor was preferable for naval purposes, and an 80-horsepower four-cylindered motor of this type has been ordered from Messrs. Vosper of Portsmouth. Mr. Norman, writing in The World's Work on the subject, says, There can be no question that such high speed and cheap construction, 80 horsepower giving in the little boat as much speed, to consider that only, as 8,000 in the big boat, point to the use of motorboats for naval purposes in the near future. A torpedo boat exists only to carry one or two torpedoes within launching distance of the enemy. The smaller and cheaper she can be, and the fewer men she carries, provided always she be able to face a fairly rough sea, the better. Now the ordinary steam torpedo boat carries perhaps 20 men and costs anything from 50,000 to 100,000 pounds. A motorboat of equal or greater speed could probably be built for 15,000 pounds and would carry a crew of two men. Six motorboats, therefore, could be built for the cost of one steamboat, and their total crews would not number so many as the crew of the one. Moreover, they could all be slung on board a single vessel and only set afloat near the scene of action. A prophetic friend of mine declares that the most dangerous worship of the future will be a big vessel, unarmored and only lightly armed, but of the utmost possible speed, carrying 20 or more motor torpedo boats slung on davits. She will rely on her greater speed for her own safety, if attacked. She will approach as near the scene of action as possible, and will drop all her little boats into the water, and they will make a simultaneous attack. Their hulls will be clean, their machinery in perfect order, their crews fresh and full of energy, and it would be strange if one of the twenty did not strike home, and the destruction of a battleship or great cruiser at the cost of a score of these little wasps manned by two score men would be a very fine naval bargain. Mr. Norman omits one recommendation that must in active service count heavily in favor of the motorboat and that is its practical invisibility in the day or at night time. The destroyer, when traveling at high speed, betrays its presence by clouds of smoke or red-hot funnels. The motorboat is entirely free from such dangerous accompaniments. The exhaust from the cylinders is invisible in every way. The very absence of funnels must also be in itself a great advantage. The eye, roving over the waters, might easily pick up a series of stumpy black objects of hard outline. But the motorboat, 
riding low and flatly on the waves, would probably escape notice, especially when a searchlight alone can detect its approach. It may reasonably be said that the Admiralty knows its own business best, and that the outsider's opinion is not wanted. The man in the street has become notorious for his paper generalship and strategy, and fallen somewhat into disrepute as an advisor on military and naval matters. Yet we must not forget this, that many, we might say most, of the advances in naval mechanisms, armor, and weapons of defense have not been evolved by naval men, but by the highly educated and ingenious civilian who, unblinded by president or professional conservatism, can watch the game even better in some aspects than the players themselves and see what the next move should be. That move may be rather unorthodox, like the application of steam to men of war, but nonetheless the correct one under the circumstances. We allowed other nations to lead us in the matter of breech-loading cannon, armor plate, submarines, the abolition of combustible material on warships? Shall we also allow them to get ahead with motorboats and begin to consider that there may be something in motor auxiliaries for the fleet when they are already well supplied? If there is a country which should, above all others, lose no time in adding the motor to her means of defense, that country is Great Britain. End of section 10.